Hello and welcome to Take Me Out, the Let's Lab podcast with me, your host, Elliot Dominey, a third year law student at the University of Greenwich. Today's episode is the danger of deepfakes, a fascinating new emerging technology and like most new technologies comes with a sinister side. Joining me today to discuss this topic is my esteemed guest, Kelsey Forrest. Kelsey is a leading commercial lawyer specializing in media and technology. She shares a keen interest in this topic. Kelsey, thank you for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thank you for the invitation. And now, Kelsey, how long have you been studying deepfakes specifically? So deepfakes specifically, I've been researching and uh, studying for about three years now. Um, I was fortunate in that I was simply paying attention to Reddit um, when they first kind of entered onto the scene. And um, at the time, not a lot of people knew about them. They were just kind of seen as as this very um, niche kind of weird phenomenon. Um, but I thought it was really fascinating uh, for, for several reasons that I'm sure we'll get onto. And um, it all really started with a blog post. Um, I thought it was interesting. I wrote a little blog post about the legal implications of manipulating someone's image and posting it online. And that was picked up by um, the International Risk Governance Center in Zurich a couple months later. And I was invited to attend a workshop out of that. Um, and ever since then, it's just been kind of nonstop. And as you'll see from, from the media and the news, um, deep fakes are just becoming more and more um, topical. Because hmm. it's fascinating that you say it's becoming more topical because there aren't a lot of people today talking about this topic and especially uh, being experts in the topic uh, like you can be considered to be. Uh, it, it's really fascinating how uh, an impact this has on society as a whole. And now for those unfamiliar with the term, what exactly in its most basic form is a deepfake? Sure. So a deep fake um, is a combination of two words, uh, two phrases. Um, it comes from deep learning, which is a type of machine learning or an artificial intelligence algorithm. And then, of course, fake. So a deep fake, putting it very simply, is a piece of AI generated uh, media, audiovisual media um, that purports to show someone doing or some or saying something that they did not do. Um, it's a fancy way of saying a face swapped video, but they can actually be a lot more complex. It's more than just face swapping. It's um, kind of bending the norms of truth and using audiovisual content to do that. I remember my first time uh, coming across a deep fake was, and what most people might be familiar with, was uh, in the cinema watching Star Wars Rogue One, and then Carrie Fisher comes back looking exactly as she did in the original movies. And so, other than uh, improving our movies, what are the social benefits of deep fakes? Yeah, I'm so pleased that you've asked that question because it's really important to remember that deepfake is not an inherently bad or evil technology. Um, there are a lot of positive things and beneficial things that can come out of this really interesting tech. Um, for example, um, people who suffer from Alzheimer's can be shown videos, realistic videos of their younger selves engaging and interacting with their family members. And that has been shown to help people with memory issues. Likewise, certain museums um, have used deepfake technology to bring to life historical figures um, and people who uh, again, by way of example, um, perished during the Holocaust. And research, research shows that due to the, um, the 
the emotional connection that we form when we see a human face, when we see an animated human face, um, this can actually lead to a really profound reaction with museum viewers. Um, similarly, there have been some heritage websites that are using the technology to bring back, um, I put that in inverted commas, bring back um, people who passed away using old photographs. So I never met my great grandfather. Um, I could scan a picture of him um, in his cottage in front of, you know, in Norway somewhere from, from 150 years ago and see him move and feel a connection to him in that way. So those are just a couple of ways that deep fake technology can be used in a beneficial way. That's some really uh, beautiful examples there, especially with uh, how it can be helped with memory loss. Uh, I never even considered, uh, say, uh, someone elderly whose wife passed away a couple of years ago, being able to see their face again. Uh, it really is a technology that has use for everyone at home and not just businesses for training and uh, different areas such as that. So when it comes to more of the dangers of deepfakes, when I think of what can be stolen from me, one of the last things I think about is my face being stolen. <laughs> and so how can deepfakes affect your image rights? So I'd like to take a step back and I know we're talking about individuals, but it can be helpful to kind of consider the different layers of risk that deepfakes pose. And the first, you know, the one that's talked about a lot is society. People talk about electoral manipulation and, you know, pretending to be political leaders and so on. That's that's one type of risk. Another type of risk is the risk that it poses to companies. So for example, an insurance company, you could deep fake um, a video that shows, um, you know, someone speeding or breaking into a building and submit that to the insurance company and say, oh, give me all the money because this, this damage happened, right? So social and corporate risks are two important risks, but my particular interest, as you will have garnered, is the risks that deepfakes pose to the individual. So in essence, there are two ways that deepfakes, in addition to fraud, um, can really harm an individual. And that is with respect to uh, publicity, as well as um, kind of a dignity right. And when I think about dignity rights, I'm thinking about things like reputation and privacy and so on. The publicity aspect are things like false endorsements. So if let's say I'm an ethical vegan, um, if I was a celebrity and someone deep faked me, you know, biting into a juicy hamburger, right? So that would kind of damage my brand from a commercial perspective because maybe those endorsements that I had with vegetarian or vegan companies would fall away and people would say, oh, you're not, you're not a vegan after all, you're eating a hamburger. Another, uh, returning back to the dignity aspect, so reputation, um, even if I'm just, you know, an average person, an average citizen, um, maybe I'm going through a divorce and my husband and I are fighting over custody of our, of our child. Um, my husband could do a deep baked video purporting to show me abusing our child and submit that to a judge. This is a very real, um, very serious, very emotional thing. It's, it's, it's very scary. Um, and then of course, other forms of dignity or reputational harm could include, uh, as we all know, image-based sexual abuse. And that includes, you know, what we refer to as uh, revenge porn. So those two aspects, publicity and commercial rights and endorsements on the one hand, and then on the other, you have uh, privacy, reputation, defamation, and other uh, rights of, of dignity. Well, on this uh, topic of how this can affect your uh, reputation, um, 
how serious a threat is this for influencers who rely on their face for their business um, or say a good example was I believe HSBC made Rachel Riley say that she was bad at maths which was yes. <laughs> the countdown she's brilliant at maths so yeah, how might no. this affect a business in that sense I, I remember that. Um, that was quite funny. I thought it was very clever as well. Um, so in today, one of the, the things that I try to get across, especially to maybe older lawyers or lawyers who aren't familiar with social media, is that this is not just a throwaway, a side, random phase. Um, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, this form of like hyper reactive, um, targeted advertising, these things are here to stay. And especially in light of, um, you know, lockdown and staying at home, we really live and communicate and work and create through the online ecosystem. And it's for that reason that I'm so passionate about ensuring that people take things like misappropriation of identity and digital personas really seriously. And you mentioned, um, you know, what threat this poses to influencers and other people public sphere. And I, I think that it's a considerable threat. Um, but it's not just the influencers. We all have images and online profiles. Today, it's very difficult, even as a boring city lawyer like myself, to, to get by without having a good LinkedIn profile. And I would be um, I would be mortified if someone were to take one of my many, you know, selfies that I have floating around in, in the interweb and and you know, purported to show me doing or saying something that was unbecoming as a lawyer. My reputation, my professional career, not to mention my personal life, could be um, really irreparably harmed. And it's important to remember, too, that for as much time as we're spending online and interacting online, the regulations that seek to uh, control and regulate, you know, the, those types of interactions are still uh, quite young. Um, and, uh, you know, once a piece of damaging audiovisual content is out there, it's really difficult to, to reel it back in and to regain control. It's, as you say, it's not just influences that are affected. Um, with the online world seeming to become more and more of a dangerous place, how might you, in the shoes of a parent, say, advise a young teen or child on how to limit their exposure to deep fakes? As someone who's very new to technology or just getting into the social media world, how might you advise them to steer clear or not be the victim of a deep fake? So, I mean, the, the best way to, to mitigate your risk, as we say, as, as lawyers would say, um, is to ensure that no photographs of yourself whatsoever end up on social media. Now, that's highly unlikely. It's, it's also highly um, undesirable um, for reasons that I just explained. You know, we, we as humans um, are designed to react to the human face. It's why body language is, is so important. Um, so I would say, if you're gonna have photos of yourself online, go for it. Um, I'm all about um, empowering people to, to, to do that. I, I do it myself. Um, but be mindful 
of the quality and the quantity of images that you're putting out there. And the reason why I say that is this, it's because artificial intelligence algorithms are trained on data sets. And the more information that you make available, the more sophisticated and accurate that algorithm can become. So you might remember the, you know, the 10 year challenge where people were posting pictures of themselves as babies or teenagers and then as, you know, ancient 32 year olds like myself. Um, when you put those things out there, don't be fooled. There are some very clever people with perhaps malicious intent who are using that data. And let's remember this is data and training artificial intelligence algorithms to do very accurate, scarily accurate, um, aging and de-aging um, processes, right? The other thing too, is that there's a big difference between taking the occasional selfie and posting it to a private Instagram account versus uploading, you know, 10,000 high resolution pictures of your child at ages six months, eight months, 10 months, you know, 13 months and so on. So if you're gonna post pictures of yourself or um, allow your teenagers to do so, that's fine, but just be smart about it. Maybe uh, use things like sunglasses. Um, if you're taking a picture of your, of your baby or your child, um, wax sunglasses or a hat, or um, you know, take a picture of them from behind. If you're looking at yourself, you know, just be mindful. Maybe don't post pictures of yourself completely um, in, a, in a bikini if you're, if you're worried about how that might be misused. Um, you can also put things behind um, locked accounts. It's not foolproof, but it's certainly a way to limit your risk. And now we've discussed being the victim in the sense of being deep faked and having this video made of you. But how might this be used uh, to, say, attack people? And how might an image of you that someone's created or someone else be used to, say, scam someone? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so you might, well, I was gonna say you might remember, but surely you were not around before the age of CCTV, nor was I. Um, but for a long time, let's look at the history of law, right? When you're dealing with witness statements, um, people want eyewitness accounts. Um, but people's memories fade. People get things wrong. People observe things incorrectly, right? Then when you had the advent of video and T uh, CCTV, people would think, oh, well, wait a second, this is even more enhanced. This is even more accurate. So forget the witness statements. Let's push that to the one side and let's focus on the CCTV recording of you at Crystal Palace train station, right? What I think we now need to do is to realize that now this irrefutable evidence of video footage can be manipulated. So. You could have, for example, someone purporting to say or do or steal something, and then you make a decision based on that information, whether you are an employer, a friend, a relative, you know, a, a colleague, and you make a decision based on inaccurate evidence, and that could have a lot of repercussions. Again, this goes down to distorting our ideas that for the last several decades, which have been Video is truth, you know? Photos or it didn't happen. But now we need to challenge that norm because it's not photos or it didn't happen, it's photos or it might have happened. Um, the other thing too to, that I think is really interesting is now people are using the prevalence of deep fakes to challenge things that actually did in fact happen. Um, you know, we'll remember of course, uh, the trouble surrounding uh, my, my homeland, uh, the United States in, in January this year. Um, surrounding uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. 
And even after he was inaugurated, when video surfaced of him in the Oval Office, people were saying, well, this isn't real. It's a deep fake because President Trump is still in power. So again, this all comes down to this distortion of truth and manipulation of decision-making processes, whether it's deciding to file a court judgment or deciding to break up with your partner because you've seen a video of them cheating or you know, deciding to vote for someone or to not vote for someone. It all comes down to that decision-making manipulation. It's a very interesting point you make though, because everyone knows the saying of seeing is believing, but deepfakes really have thrown a wrench into that. Um, so how might this affect our trust when it comes to evidence we see on the news or evidence even used in a courtroom? Yeah, um, it's it's a hugely important question and there are many, many clever, clever people out there trying to figure this out. Um, the obnoxious answer is it depends. Um, I think that what we're going to see, this is really just the beginning. I think that we may actually need, uh, we're going to need better systems. We're going to need better verification processes. We're going to need better education, um, starting at, at a very young age, which says, you know, just because it's on, well, we, you'll remember this, you know, a couple of years ago, people were saying, oh, just because you read it online doesn't mean it's real. Just because you see it on social mm -hmm. media, doesn't mean it's real. Um, we're just going to need to now take that to the next level, which is, just because it is um, a video, a moving image, audiovisual content doesn't mean it's real. Now, you started this program by, by talking about um, hologram acting and Carrie Fisher and Star Wars. I think it's very interesting because manipulation and, and um, you know, CGI and visual special effects, they've been around for decades. Um, the first computer animated alteration of the human face was actually in the 1970s. But there's a very real difference, <clears throat> excuse me, because when you walk into a cinema, you know, the lights are down, you have your popcorn in your hands, you're sitting in front of a screen and you as the audience, you are, um, you're saying, look, what I'm about to see is fake. You know that going in and it's a very enjoyable experience. You know, you see crazy things that you would never see in real life, but we don't have that when it comes to looking at the internet because the internet is life, you know, it, it, it's just as real as anything else. And so I think that what we need to do is in the same way that everyone knows that when you're walking into a movie theater, you're about to see a work of fiction. Um, you, we also need to have that same kind of framework when we open up our laptops and we log on to Twitter and we when we consume news media. And that's gonna involve um, education, not only um, at childhood level, but you know even things like when you're reading something on social media, we should be able to see something like this has been verified or this hasn't been verified. Um, again, that goes to a much broader conversation about social media regulation more generally, um, but it's just food for thought. Uh, that was actually the question I was going to get onto was that since the photos that are used normally aren't from your personal computer, someone hasn't hacked into your computer and took it from your documents, it is from your Facebook and Instagram photos you've decided to upload and allow people to view or allow them to follow you to view it. So how are Facebook and Instagram trying to counteract these deepfakes? So, um... Facebook and Instagram, just, just as everyone knows, Facebook owns Instagram and also owns WhatsApp. So I'll just refer to them collectively as, as Facebook. Um, Facebook together with Microsoft and some other research uh, institutions, um, they actually initiated the deep fake challenge. Um, and they basically brought together 15,000 scientists from around the world to solve this problem. And this happened about a year ago. 
um, and they still don't have an answer. <laughs> so um, when you're looking to moderate content, I mean, Facebook has 20,000 people around the world working on moderation of content. So take down requests, things that are flagged as harmful, um, and they're still not on top of it. It's a really, really difficult thing when you consider how much content, videos, posts, you know, pictures are uploaded every single day. So it's a massive, a massive problem just in terms of the sheer quantity of data that's being uploaded. Um, but they also, these social media companies, they also understand that they hold a really special role in society today. 2.7 billion people are active users on Facebook. You know, that's one out of every three people on, on the planet. Um, so they know that in due course, as regulators and lawyers and politicians become more savvy to the various online harms that are that are out there, they know that they're probably going to have to change their ways in terms of how they use and moderate people's uh, content, user-generated content. So you'll see things like voluntary codes of conduct. For example, Facebook and some other social media giants um, have signed up to the European Union's um, Dis and Misinformation Code of Practice, which is basically a quasi-legal, you know, we pinky promise to treat people with respect and not push out fake, you know, fake news kind of policy document. It doesn't hold much legal weight, but we're going to see things start to change at both the UK domestic level with the online harms bill, for example, as well as at European level with the Digital Services Act packages. In regards to what social media has in effect to try and stop these, surely when it comes to damage in regards to reputation, uh, getting these deep fakes and taking them down needs to be quite a quick response in order for that damage to not occur. Uh, when I think of an example of someone's reputation being damaged, the first one I think is of uh, Nancy Pelosi, who um, had the, uh, I believe it was a cheap fake, where they yep, slowed exactly. it down and increased the pitch, so it made her sound drunk. By the time anyone realised she was actually sober and something had done to the video, the damage had been done, people thought she had given the speech drop. Uh, so how might we speed up and target these deep fakes more effectively? Well, I'm really pleased to hear that you said uh, cheap fakes because it's a really important distinction to make. Um, a cheap fake is in contrast to a deep fake and it's basically a piece of manipulated audiovisual content that doesn't necessarily involve um, artificial intelligence. So basically photoshopping, slowing things down, speeding them up, changing colors, that sort of thing. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, in order for um, reputational harm to be mitigated, you have to act really, really quickly. The problem is, okay, let's take your slowing down of Nancy Pelosi video as an example. Let's say I am um, doing some gym gymnastics um, at uh, my local leisure center and I do a really cool flip in the air and um, my best friend is videoing me and she uses the technological process to slow down my, my action, my somersault in the air, slow down the video and then post it on Facebook. Now, if Facebook has a fancy tool that says, whoa, 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 we can detect a video has been slowed down, then what's going to happen? Yes, it will prevent the Nancy Pelosi video from being uploaded, but it's also going to prevent my perfectly fine, you know, completely legal video of me doing a somersault in the air, right? 
So in order to make a determination as to the potential harms that are that are apparent in the video, you need to, to analyze it and consider its context. So this is why, this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to moderate these things, because, um, you know, if you do a deep fake of, say, Boris Johnson, um, that could be harmful and that could be malicious and that could, you know, let's say he goes on and says vaccines are, you know, blah, 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 and people believe it and it causes lots of public health issues. But you could also have a deep fake of Boris Johnson, which is completely innocent because it's a form of political satire. So again, we have to remember, deep fakes are not inherently wrong or evil or bad. It's the context and then the way in which they're used. And because this varies on a case by case basis, it's really difficult to know which ones to take down or which ones should be prevented or removed. It's a, a common point that's made. Uh, it's never the technology that's evil. It's always the person using the technology that's mm. evil. Um, I agree with that. So in regards to legislative prevention, what is the UK doing to try and tackle deepfakes in regards to your image rights and your privacy? Yeah, so with respect to um, you know, image rights or rights of publicity as they're known, also um, persona or personality rights. The UK doesn't actually recognize image rights as such. So there's no inherent um, automatic special protection that you get over a picture of yourself. And um, if you're interested in this, I've written extensively on it. So please do just, uh, I can send across some links. Um, but with respect to um, deep fakes in particular, the UK is looking at the harms in which that video or that deep fake is causing. So with respect to image-based sexual abuse, we're looking at new voyeurism um, offenses. Um, we're looking at different forms of harassment that can be up to the updating the legislation to cover things like videos, which at present it doesn't. Um, we're also looking at um, the level of responsibility that a social media platform has over the content that is shared on its platform. So it makes sense um, to for a social media company to say, hey, 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 we're just we're just the the building here. People can be as crazy as they want inside the building. We're not in charge um, as a way to kind of um, protect themselves from liability. Um, so this this comes down to social uh, media online intermediary liability is is what it's called. Um, so regulators and politicians are now thinking, wait a second, we're, we're fine to protect social media companies to a certain extent because we want people to use them. We don't want to overregulate. But isn't there a duty of care that, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world owe to their users? And shouldn't social media companies be taking more of a vested interest in ensuring that people's mental and physical well-being is protected when they use these, these platforms? So that's another angle that the, that the UK is looking at is kind of readdressing the responsibilities that a social media company has over the, the content that's posted. Now, like with most technology that is released today, there is a common problem of the law lagging behind. The way I normally like to put it is if technology is moving at 100 miles an hour, the law that governs it is moving at about 10 miles an hour. Uh, or five or two. Yeah, <laughs> So uh, if it was up to you and today you were given the powers to make legislation on how we should tackle deepfakes, how would you do it? And I don't you expect an answer <laughs> because it is, we've got the world's best minds on this who go, we don't know. 
but if it was up to you, how might you tackle this? I, I need to learn to like prepare for this question because I get asked this question all of the time. And actually, um, I was asked by the European Parliament this very question um, last month um, when I was interviewed um, as, a, as an expert to talk about their, their regulation. And it's funny um, because in law school, you always think, oh, the people who are writing the laws, they're so brilliant. And uh, at the end of the day, we're just people too. You know, we, we're just as uncertain and as confused as everyone else. Uh, we just have a few more years experience. Um, I think for me, I think the key really is gonna come down to uh, one, people being more, in the same way that you have those those obnoxious cookie pop-ups on your browser. I mean, we all hate them. I know they're annoying, but they do serve a purpose. They serve to remind you that um, technology companies and websites can track your behavior online and then they can use that behavior to target advertising, right? They're annoying, but they serve a purpose. I think that we need to get the social media companies on board and we need to have them play a more active role when it comes to informing people about manipulated content or the possibility of content being manipulated. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the automatic deletion and removal of manipulated content because I feel that, for example, if if I'm a, a person and someone has made a deep fake about me and it harms my reputation, if Facebook deletes that automatically, well, how am I going to prove my, how am I going to prove that something happened if I wanted to sue the the creator, right? So we do need to, we need to have a way to preserve harmful content um, to to bring um, actions uh, in due course. And so that's another complicated issue when it comes to whether or not you delete or, or keep up content. Um, but I think, yeah, I think to answer your question, it comes down to having social media companies having an obligation to inform users of their platforms of the various risks associated with manipulated content. So it's a pretty easy one. Hmm. I think it's a, a good answer to uh, no matter what method we use, we will need to make sure that people have awareness of this technology being out there and people need to be aware that you can't always believe what you see now and that you can't just take it at face value. You do have to check that it has been verified that it's okay and is genuine and how important um, what is genuine is today. I've been studying deep fakes for quite a long time. I've, I've written and, and read extensively and I fell for a deep fake a couple of months ago myself. Um, I saw it, um, the content kind of aligned with my political leanings and um, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is horrible or this is juicy and I retweeted it. And then I thought about it for a few minutes and then I watched it again. I'm like, no, this can't be real. Guess what? It wasn't. But in that moment when I was looking at Twitter and I saw it and it was, you know, purporting to show a politician doing something stupid. And I thought to myself, well, that politician would do that sort of thing, wouldn't they? Um, but again, it just goes to show that even those of us who are educated or aware of the issues, even we need a little bit of help from time to time in identifying these things because they are very convincing and they will only become more and more convincing. Oh, it's like you say, if, uh, if you know you're looking at a deep fake, you can go, oh, well, this is fake because I, the lip's moving funny. A, a normal lip wouldn't move like that. But when you actually look at videos scrolling through Facebook, you're not going to be thinking, is this a real person? Is their mouth mm -hmm. moving properly? There's an interesting point you make there. Now, Kelsey, before we end things here, 
For those who are interested in deepfakes or interested in any other projects that you're involved in, where might it be best to find you? Yeah, so thank you. Um, the, the best way is, is simply going to my blog, which is Kelsey Farish, so K-E-L-S-E-Y-F-A-R-I-S-H.com. And I have links to all of my research, as well as um, papers and articles that have quoted me, um, the, the news clips that I've been in, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a great starting point. I also have um, advice and suggestions for law students who are interested in media and technology as a practice area. Um, and I'm always very happy to, to answer any questions or point fellow researchers or students in the right direction. And once again, thank you so much for being here, Kelsey. It was extremely interesting. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, you're obviously well uh, tuned in to, to the issues and um, it's always nice to speak to, to people like yourself who care about this important topic.